This is going to be our final episode, episode number three, on high reliability organizations, talking with Dr. David Van Stralen. In this episode, we're going to talk about the neuropsychology of our jobs to include the fight, fight and freeze responses, also called the amygdaloidal response, and how to neurologically cardiovert someone who has temporarily lost their prefrontal cortex. We're also going to discuss what HROs look like operationally, and that will include what they look like throughout the spectrum of your organizational personnel, to include line personnel, to middle management, to administration staff, or executive staff. Looking through this too, and, and you got me into HRO probably, I don't know, a while ago, kind of started off as a hobby just because I was interested in system design and, and interactions and things like that. So it's probably been maybe a decade almost, maybe nine years, uh, that yeah. got me interested in this. One of the things that we always talked about throughout this time was was certain things that that I was bringing into training atmospheres, and, and one of those was was some of the work that, that we used to talk about that Colonel Grossman talked about as far as the fight or flight and freezing and those type of responses brought in by the amygdala or cortisol and things like that. But that actually plays a pretty big role in, in HRO. That is one of those I guess variables that, that are discussed in there is how a leader, how someone else working in that system can reset somebody once they go into that that tipping point. I believe you discussed that in, in one of your recent articles that you're you're coming up as far as the environment that creates, you know, a fear response and a stress response, you know, based on that that closeness to the threat and some of the involuntary releases of adrenaline and, and how how does that kind of build into the decision making and things like that that are built into to HROs or from a leader model. Yeah, that's an, another important concept that is um, missed by a lot of the research articles, probably because they're outside the group. They, they're beyond the threshold, haven't crossed over um, that near-death vulnerability. And, and I came across this in the early 80s when one of my professors in anatomy, I asked him what his research was, and he says, well, the amygdala. I said, what's that? And he said, well, that's the seat of emotions. So that was goofy because emotions were just something in your brain. It wasn't a part of your brain. So I kind of followed along that research and uh, with over time, I realized that there was a, a balance between the prefrontal cortex, which has the executive functions, which runs our brains. We think of the future. Uh, decisions, though, are, are, are uh, yes, no. They're binary, either or. And, and, and the abstract thought is there. But the problem I had with that was, uh, I was told in the uh, ambulance work in the 72 and 73, that you can tell somebody who's under stress or afraid because they become very concrete in their thinking. And that was not well explained by the uh, executive functions of the prefrontal cortex, but it was by the amygdala. And as we did work on the amygdala, we realized that the front part of our brain goes from perception to thought. The amygdala goes perception to action. So I do need that. But it can cause me to do action that's unsafe. And that's where you start seeing the fight, flight, and freeze response in the limbic system. Well, the problem I have with that then was fight, flight, and freeze is I am never afraid because I don't fight people. I don't punch a, a patient in the nose or their family, and I don't punch another physician in the nose. Um, also, I don't run away through the hospital screaming, and I definitely don't freeze and just stand there like a deer in the headlights. Well, well that didn't work for me, so I started studying more about what those were, how they would show up. And in the field, over five years and over 7,000 rescue runs, I never saw anybody become angry on a scene. Now, I screwed up and nearly endangered, well, endangered my partner and vice versa. We never yelled at each other on scene ever. And I get into healthcare and I find people yelling on and scene. This is odd because you don't yell. 
You don't get angry in an emergency. The scary part is I tell this to some firefighters, captains, and fire chiefs, and they say, yes, yeah, sometimes you have to. So I'm a little worried about some of our public safety programs. But the uh, fight shows up as anger, and it's an adrenaline-mediated, you start coning your attention. You're not focused like you think you are. You call it focus, but it's, it's coned. You're missing things that's going on around you. The flight uh, response shows up as uh, avoidance. It's got to be plausible. Let me get more equipment. Let me go check this thing over here. I got another patient to look at. You always have something to do that's more important than engage, and that's the flight response. The freeze response is cortisol-mediated, and, and it, it actually makes you not think. Now, we're a prey species. I know there's a lot of men out there who think they're not. They're what alpha dog or the alpha male or whatever the alpha thing, they, the alphabet. And they, uh, they believe that. But you never see a, a dog or a, a bear or mountain lion caught in the headlights. It's always a prey species. They're the ones who freeze. And you do that by saying the months of the year out loud from January to December. And then have the person repeat them alphabetically. I know one combat vet got to six. A lady who lived in Russia for a while and came back to the U.S. got to 11. My wife can do all 12 because she's heard me say this statement over the years. So she went out and she memorized them alphabetically. She's the only one I know who can do it. But that's cortisol. It's the same as you have a four-year-old child and ask them uh, what do they want to wear today. They can't answer that question. What shirt do you want to wear? I can't answer that question. Hold up two shirts. Which one do you want? This one or that one? They can answer the question. You'll see that all the time with people. They're fatigued and they can't make a decision. If you say choose between A or B, they can. So that's how the fight, flight, and freeze response shows up. So I was kind of living with that for a while, but it still wasn't good enough because how do you modulate that? And I found out there are regions of the brain that do that. They do error recognition. They do adaptive decision-making. They can actually modulate the, the amygdala, which is important because the amygdala will shut down the prefrontal cortex. It just completely shuts it down where it doesn't work. There's another part of the brain that does come in and intervene and modulate the amygdala. So now I have in a uh, what I call a survival situation, I can have enough of the amygdala that I am forced to act and I will act, but not so much that I act for my survival self-interest. My survival will be by collaboration. And, and I do that talking to some of the special forces guys when it's really hard to tell them that they felt fear. Now, they did have that portion of the amygdala that focused, not coned their attention, but focused their attention, that drove them to act rapidly in, in a manner, I talked to a, a neuropsychologist for special ops um, years, who did it for years. He says, what it is, you, you want it to be a reflex, but you want to choose your reflex. And some uh, special ops guys call it uh, muscle memory. But you choose the muscle memory, and that's a different part of the brain. So I, I, it's hard for me to call that fear response like this neuroscientists do. I tried threat response, but that doesn't work either. So I, and now I'm calling it kind of a survival response. It's not medical. But it gets across that there are people who they don't have that sense of, of, of the emotion or the sense of fear that you, you have of a feeling of fear. Um, they will see an engagement and, and go and engage it. So I've talked to some staff who have been attacked by a guy with a knife. And that you can still hear the fear in their discussions. And yet, in my job, we would actually approach those situations. We're told... There's a stabbing, the man who did the stabbing, the, the culprit's still there. Go in and see if you can take care of the patient, you know, the victim. Cops aren't on scene. We walk in. We might have a helicopter overhead. We're looking for the victim knowing that the 
culprit is around. Um, and, and that was just what we did. That, that's how you worked. So uh, the fight, flight, and freeze response, those are fear responses. They're in the amygdala. They can't be modulated. We do need them. Otherwise, we don't act. And you'll see that with people who will sit there and perseverate over the question, all the different options. People who have a stroke of the amygdala can never make a decision. So we need the amygdala. We need the prefrontal cortex. We need that portion of the brain that modulates the two. And you'll see that in the best of the operators. They're able to modulate this and work through it. So they are continually thinking about what they're doing as they do it. They're thinking anticipation of what's going on. They're able to think so rapidly they don't realize they're thinking probably. So kind of starting to wrap this up a little bit is if we were going to take a topic and we don't have to go into the, the minutiae details on this, but let's say we're looking at something similar to what we did. I, I guess it's been over a year now out there in San Bernardino. We kind of looked at an active shooter or an active violence type of situation, mass casualty, whether it was in a school or whatnot, and kind of tried to apply that into an HRO type of system. Now, on an active shooter, you're going to apply those principles because you're going to have the line operator, and that's going to be the officer who's entering. His threat is that he can get hurt. He can be shot. And you can see then that he's going to be vigilant. He's going to be watching for early signs of where the shooter is. He's going to be listening for uh, gunshots. He's going to be listening for door closing and running. He's going to be yelling or screaming. Um, and, and he's going to be kind of feeding this. And by keeping his, his uh, amygdala modulated, he's able to think through these patterns without being reflexive, without thinking, but reflexive with thinking. He's going to be seeing that differently. Now, you've got the police chief and the school superintendent, and you've got the mayor, and you've got all the government officials in, in the hospitals. Their ideas now, of their vulnerability is they want to make sure there's resources are out there, that uh, this information is going out to the public to reassure the public. Um, the school, uh, school superintendent's vulnerability is that if all the schools start thinking that, the families start thinking that, then all the parents start showing up to different schools, and that causes problems. And it can be quite serious problems. Um, it can drain the resources they try to, to, to work these other schools where the real problem is at the, the target school. The police chief, he's still got a, a, a crimes going on in the city. So does he drain everything in there? Um, what else is going on? Same with the fire department. How close in do we get to the scene where we can help immediately without endangering our, our firefighters? Same with EMS people. So at the executive level of the different groups, their vulnerability is different. Uh, we, and then the middle manager is going to be basically your incident commander. How does he interpret all these different people? And, and I talked to uh, Dan Kleiman, was, was one. He's wonderful at this ability to, to translate between groups, pulling uh, communities together. I had one where the mayor uh, or one of the elected officials was angry that the firefighters didn't do more. He let the person talk. He, he heard about how horrible it was to the community and how the community suffered. Because some of these towns, they make all their money in summer because winter, this town closes down. And so if the fire destroys their uh, uh, recreational resources like hunting or fishing grounds um, or whatever the resource they have, that can be a major blow to them. They have no income that year. So he's listening to this person. And so when, she, when the person is finished, he picked up a, a hose coupling with the hose burned off. And he said, this is left where the men escaped. They stayed to protect your city until they couldn't anymore. 
And she was so moved by this, not realizing how the men had, you know, and women had, had fought to save their uh, city and what the risk they assumed, that uh, she apologized. He said, no, just keep the coupling. So you'll remember that. So he has a good way of letting them catharse, not making them humiliating them, not yelling at them, but translating in a way that, that she understood what they did in a very uh, 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 graphic way that, that was telling. And so your incident commander is that way. If, if this person focuses strictly on the event, then the outside resources don't know what's going on or how they're needed. If it focuses completely on the outside resources, the incident commander doesn't know what's happening on the field to translate it. So that's that, that three levels there and how you have to translate the vulner- different vulnerabilities that translate the information that's flowing so it has meaning and you don't have this um, data coming out that's ambiguous. Ambiguous data is deadly because I don't have any control over how the people put meaning onto it. If I say somebody's getting, if I say somebody's getting sicker or there's more danger here, that may be something that I want my team to know about so they get their guard up. But to an outsider, that may think that I don't have the resources or I don't know what I'm doing. That's that's a good point, and and I think that when we look at a, a response, you know, obviously it's a it's the big topic out there, especially after you know the rapid succession of Sandy Hook and and Boston and, and DHS just put out a, a recent guidelines, and but you also have all these other subgroups and working groups and things like that 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 put things out, and I think the a lot of the problems with them is they start putting things into this this atmosphere where it maybe it's one group of law enforcement, one group of doctors, one group of this or one group of that, that starts putting out kind of a best practices for these events, yet they don't talk to each other and all of them are going to be on that scene. So the the interoperability, one, is lacking. Number two is if I'm a doc or a firefighter coming up with a rescue task force type thing and without including law enforcement into those discussions of planning, what what I'm doing is potentially just completely useless because uh, it may not fit into the scheme that law enforcement would be able to even support or utilize for me to be able to augment those techniques in there. So if we looked at uh, a city, a municipality, knowing that every place across the United States is going to have to differ because of budgetary constraints, organic assets, how many firefighters do you have in your system? How many police officers do you have? In your, what, are, what is their training, et cetera, et cetera? The list kind of goes on and on. But if I would put that system down and say, hey, this is, this is city Y in the United States, and this is, this, is, this is our plan for an active shooter response. And I would just potentially, let's say, use just, just as a start point, those five principles uh, that you discussed earlier as, as a way to, to look at that system, which would be my active response or active shooter response system, and start putting our SOPs and TTPs through there. And let's say I looked at step one, let's say I just looked at preoccupation with failure. I would look at that system and look at all the assumptions that I make in there that potentially may not pan out. Let's say if I looked at, hey, I expect that X amount of law enforcement officers will be on the scene within this amount of time and my firemen will be on this amount of time and we will be able to automatically make access into this building and this, this and this. Probably that first step would be having that preoccupation with failure is saying, okay, let's say 
we aren't able to make it. Let's say there's something else going on in town and we only have X amount of patrol officers that could respond to the second call at a school. Fire department's delayed because of this and that. Doors are locked, so you aren't making entry into that. Does that sound like one of those first steps where I can take that plan and actually run it through those filters of preoccupation with failure, uh, resistance to, to simplify, the sensitivity operations? I can take an existing SOP and potentially start filtering it through that and come up with some immediate results where I, I may have some operational gaps. Yeah, when I first uh, came and worked in an ICU, I was brought in for, uh, when I first came into an ICU, I was brought in to work and help out during a uh, disaster response. So they came up and asked me how many secretaries I wanted, how many nurses. The surgery patients would all be on one side of the ICU, the medical on the other. And so I said, well, one, if it's a major fire, you're going to find some people going home because their children are home. They have animals, uh, horses, dogs, cats. So you're going to lose some of your staff. And two, that you may not be able to get people in because they're taking care of their animals. You can't reach them. This is before cell phones. You can't reach people. Um, they have children. They, they, what are you going to do with them when they bring their children? Um, so you're going to have fewer nurses. And when a bed opens, you can't say, I'm not accepting a surgical patient because that's a medical bed. And pretty soon you're going to have patients mingling on both sides. And I was never asked to be a part of uh, the, the disaster program again over 25 years. Um, so Todd Laporte said that the organization not prepared to fail will fail. And, um, and that's true. Jim Denny, uh, a friend of mine who is uh, a natural to this, two tours in Vietnam, worked in a, as a sheriff and then worked as a paramedic ambulance with me. He was in talking to somebody at a big company. And they were showing him all their computer programs. And he asked him, he says, well, what happened if you had a power failure? He says, well, he had a great plan. So he went through the plan. And Jim said, was that a real good plan? Is he really trusted? He goes, yes. So Jim walked over and shut the power down to all the computers. And they were stunned. They just turned white. And, and he said, well, how's your plan now? And they had a plan. They just never used it, never tried it. And they, uh, they trusted it only as well as it was written. They, they never did it. So, so yeah, it's, it's true that if you're not prepared to fail, you've got to assume your plan is not going to work. And, and that's the problem with all the planning. That's why Wyatt Sutcliffe called it anticipation. Um, that proactive, we feel good about ourselves. We, we made our law rules, like Rasmussen said, and then we're going to rely on our rules, which is the strong but wrong rule that James Reason warned us about. Everything in what you said is a setup for a horrible catastrophic failure, well described. Basically, they're describing the perfect system that Charles Perrault said is the issue. They've created the normal accident profile. And for that, Perot is correct. Or they can do the, the high reliability approach from uh, Todd Laporte, Carlene Roberts, Wyke, and Sutcliffe, that your people are your asset. And when things aren't working out, it's the thinking person that will figure it out on the ground with support. They're your asset. That's that great word. The, the first person out there, the line people are assets. And that's what HRO is all about. It's the ability to self-organize around the incident and adapt to the incident and adapt off each other. So HRO really, in that sense, is a self-organizing profile. It's one where you form small nodes that are linked by information flow. They're linked by the ability to migrate authority. Those nodes combine into larger nodes and interact with other nodes. And basically, you have 
what Babarasi has described as a scale-free web. And that's pretty much what you see the uh, resilience you find in the Asian cultures, the high-context culture. You find that with Al-Qaeda, with uh, street gangs, and with Facebook. It, it's uh, this, this scale-free web of, of information flowing to the most important node and authority migrating out to the node that needs it. And that's what HRO is about. It's not about a rigid hierarchy that you find with a low-context environment where the environment has no say in the, in, in the matter. It's great for people who work in an office where they don't have to deal with emergencies. It doesn't work in real life. Now, and, and just to hit on one last part before we, we finish up here is when you're talking about the planning and, and we kind of plan for a perfect world, I think a lot of times if we get that you know, law enforcement administration together with the fire administration, with EMS, maybe with the hospital, maybe potentially with with the teachers or student administration at the at the school, a lot of that planning is done from a from a deductive standpoint, which pretty much falls apart in the face of real life. Would, would you agree? A lot of that, you know, being deductive is is where our, you know obviously our premises guarantee the conclusion is going to be valid or proven. And and when we make these either or type of type of things, when people are planning what that response plan is, uh, it, it doesn't calculate in the variables of of real life at all. Yeah, the deductive thinking is seductive because that's your evidence-based medicine. That's your rules that are proven, the projects that are proven. They're the ones somebody will always argue, but this is a proven way to do it. Also, if you give me data, data being true, then I can put that data together and prove my hypothesis. They guarantee my hypothesis. That's the seductive nature of, of deductive programs. Get the data it proves your hypothesis, guarantees that you're done. In reality, the problem we have is that our, our data is not data in the fact that it's a fact. It's, a, uh, it's, it's evidence. The evidence can be weak or strong. It can be not enough evidence. It can be imperfect evidence. And so inductive reasoning is that I have a conclusion and my evidence supports that conclusion. My job now is opposite of deductive. Deductive is I look for those things that support my point. Yes, I'm supposed to look for things that don't support it, but in reality, people look for information that supports their view. That's called confirmation bias. It's very strong. Mm -hmm. Inductive reasoning is the opposite, and your best operators in high reliability are that way. They're looking to weaken the evidence. They're looking to the fact they're wrong. They want to prove they're wrong. And that's that inductive nature of getting rid of weak evidence then if I do find my evidence strengthens, what you're seeing now over a period of a short time, evidence is going away, evidence is strengthening, which means my conclusion changes. And in America, from as you watch the newscast and commentators, somebody who keeps changing their conclusion based on the changing evidence is considered weak. But in a high reliability or in an emergency, that's actually considered strong because you want them to have that doubt. They're not sure the conclusion is working. They're always trying to prove and disprove evidence simultaneously. They're trying to increase their chance of success at the same time, decrease their chance of failure. And that's that inductive reasoning that you find in, in a national forest. I throw that out there. When you date somebody, if you're looking for a spouse, that's inductive reasoning. Nobody sits down and, and counts up the points like, well, this person's wealthy, attractive. They've got bad breath. Let me see how many points do I put to each three of those? And then I can decide whether to marry or not. Right. That's deductive. 
Inductive is over a period of time you decide whether this person is for you or not. Um, should you have dropped them sooner? I don't know. Should you have kept, you know, had you gone a little longer because you've gotten through that rough patch and then stayed f- married forever? I don't know. Did you stay too long with somebody and missed out some good opportunities? I don't know. So, so the, the, just the, the, the dating dance of developing a relationship with somebody who you're going to spend a long time with, that's actually inductive. You're always looking for evidence that strengthen or weaken, should I stay with this person? Now, you also brought up another one called abductive, uh, which I think was introduced by Pierce back in the day. And I think it has probably a little bit of relevancy when, when we've talked about RPD philosophy with Klein as far as kind of dealing with hunches that you may have. Yeah, I, and that came up in a discussion I had with Carl Weick uh, and Tom Mercer. And Tom and I were describing to Carl how we make our, our decisions to act in, 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 as it, in its interactive mode. And he asked us about abductive reasoning where you rapidly create a hypothesis. And, and that's true to a point. But in our discussion, there were some flaws with it that didn't quite apply. And I just recently talked to a neuropsychologist who also suggested that what we did was abductive. And I discussed it with him. Um, you're going to rapidly create a hypothesis that's a working hypothesis and then keep changing it. And that's how you develop your conclusion for inductive reasoning. So it's abductive reasoning. But the more discussions we had with Carl over the course of over an hour, he began to wonder if there was a fourth or maybe fifth type of reasoning we do in these interactive situations. Because you're, you're, you're sensing the environment, you're perceiving it and, and understanding it, and the, the epistemology, which is, is a goofy word because it sounds ostentatious, but what it means is I give value to my beliefs. And so a physician gives value to uh, anything that has evidence-based medicine. And so he gives value to that. Yeah, that's a belief. Um, if you ask him, what do you do if there is no evidence, um, he'll try to find the evidence. And that's one of the weak spots of, of evidence-based medicine is what if you have a small number of patients, um, you don't have the patient meet the criteria, but sort of does. So that's epistemology. There's other people who believe that they're very smart. And if they don't know it and they've never experienced it, then it doesn't exist and doesn't, cannot happen. And you work with those people. And that's their evidence. They, they assume that if and I have, I've seen that actually with very junior people at times. Um, if they've never seen it, they don't believe it'll ever happen. Or if they can't understand how it could happen, then it cannot happen. Um, so, so that's their, their reasoning to it. The reason I'm stressing this is that the epistemology of somebody in high reliability is different. We believe in those things only that respond to us. And so a word that I say one time may calm people down. The next time it makes them angry. So I don't even know what word to use. So it's a response. It's a form of of loop decision-making by John Boyd. And so we're looking for responsiveness. And and that's what we started getting in with Carl about, is there another type of reasoning we're doing? Because in in inductive, you have a conclusion with evidence that you strengthen and weaken. Abductive, you're rapidly creating a um, hypothesis. But what we were doing is we have no conclusion. We have no hypothesis. All we're identifying is, what does this thing respond to? Does it respond to massive firepower? Does it respond to antibiotics? Um, what does it respond to? And I try multiple things at once. 
and then try to sort out as I do it what, how the response was. And, and that's not been well described. But, but I think people who've been in the, um, what some people call like Rona Flynn calls the hot seat, but in that situation where you're in the ring, you're fighting, and you're losing, you're winning, you're losing. Sometimes you don't even know if you're winning or losing. You don't even know what conclusion you can have. You don't even know the outcome you can have. You're just trying to bring control to this, get the best outcome you can have. So you're not making conclusions, you're not making hypotheses, and you definitely aren't doing deductive. And that's really what more life is like for us, but it's not been well described. All right, well, listen, I appreciate your time. And real quick, if people wanted to check out more on your stuff, they can hit uh, highreliability.org. I know you guys have some conferences and things like that going on. I imagine they can probably hit you on an email via that route too. You also have some articles coming out. I know uh, you just put one out in the journal for contingencies and crisis management that deals with some ambiguity issues within HRO. Is that, that sound about right? That's right. Awesome. Dave, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Hey, thank you.